Sunshine. 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 But uh, these dedications, unless they're really obvious. That's Jerry Garcia and Bernard Ingram. <laughs> Ingram Bernard Ingram. Um, Bernard Ingham. Can't be him. Was he called Bernard Ingham? Bernard Ingham was. Uh, <laughs> oh, I thought he was called Bernard Ingram. Maybe James Ingram. Of, uh, Who's that? Yeah, will be there with Michael McDonald fame. Oh, right. Oh, yeah, Michael oh, right. McDonald. Oh. The 80s, kind of 70s... <laughs> Schmoozy singer, yeah, very prescient um, dedication. The Christopher, a poor man's Christopher Cross. <laughs> poor man's Christopher. Ooh, Sorry, we've, we've uh, well, I don't know. solved that mystery straight away. It's Jerry Garcia and um, James Ingram. James Ingram. No relation of Bernard Ingham. No. <laughs> it turns out. Yeah. So right, sixth book in the se- in the series now, and um, we're deep into Cotton Hall's territory. Cotton Hawes, if you've not been listening, is the new cop who was introduced uh, a book ago, was it? Yeah. That is mm. correct, yeah. And um, Ed McBain, Evan Hunter, was sort of charged by his publishers to try and shift the focus from Steve Carella, who was too nice, he was married, and therefore couldn't be a hero, <laughs> uh, onto a younger cop who they sort of saw as being a bit of a private eye character. I was looking at the introduction that Ed McBain wrote to the 1993 version of it, mm-hmm. um, which I have printed out here, where he moans even more about it. <laughs> it's quite good, yes. Suggesting that the that the publisher wanted him to sort of start writing books with titles that use the word cotton in them, so things like cotton and steel, cotton and silk. Oh. Um, but he'd already come up with Killer's Payoff and had to fight for that. I suspect much of the focus of this podcast is going to be about Cotton Hawes, mm. really, because this is where he comes into his stride. His Brilliant. dirty, dirty stride. Hawes by name. Yeah. Hawes by but this behaviour. Is a, by behaviour. But it's an interesting book because I think it is sort of... It's a bit baroque, really, what happens in it. It's, it's quite a big story mm. with lots of different uh, characters... And a bit of a funny way of playing out the actual solving of the crime. Definitely, yeah. And it's a little bit like Ed McBain was worried about, which is that he, you treat Cotton Hawes as a, as a private detective rather than a member of the police force. And you can see that in here a little bit. But it is a good book. Um, I enjoy it very much. And it opens with the line, It could have been 1937. Because we start with someone being gunned down from a passing car, much like a mob or gangland killing. Unlike the episode we've just watched, Mm. where the man was shot silently in a phone booth. Yeah. Which you couldn't really see. Yeah, or hear. Or hear. Or perceive. Yeah. (laughs) Wasn't quite as dramatic as the opening of the book. Indeed. But it's uh, in the way it uh, introduces Cotton Halls is like a, I think we mentioned it in the last podcast, a bit of a, a double header introduction, really, because he was the main character in the last book and yeah. clearly the main character in this book as well. 
Um, yeah, to, to sort of get him deliberately off on the wrong foot in the previous book and then let him actually get into a stride in this one. So Yeah, he's been a little bit humbled by some of the things that happened in the last book. So he's already made him a better cop mm. by making him learn from those things. But he still goes a little bit... Uh, Outside of the rules to do this, but, but I, I don't know what you mean about him being a bit privatey esque because he does kind of go off and yeah, do he's a kind bit of, of a law unto himself, isn't yeah, he? But, uh, which, um, yeah, would be uh, over and beyond what would be expected, I would think. Hmm. Yeah, I made a note of what what happens in the chapters. A very short little note. That's the sound of my paper, uh, people. And I've got some highlights. And in chapter three, chapter nine, and chapter fourteen. I've got the notes. Hawes sleeps with her. Hawes <laughs> sleeps with her. Hawes sleeps with her. Yep. He's, he certainly sleeps around a lot in this book. As, as uh, our author likes to put it, and so to bed. And so to bed. That's the, <laughs> the turn of phrase. That's the dot, dot, dot <laughs> yep. to uh, leave your imagination. Uh, well, there's not much left to the imagination, to be honest, really. I think it's pretty clear. Yeah, but I yeah, I do enjoy this book because it's got a it's got a fairly ludicrous cast of characters. It's got some mm. posh stuck up people. It's got some fairly jolly characters. It's got some sleazy characters, um, some quite forceful ones as well. Yeah. The uh, the rich tapestry of life. Indeed, indeed, we, he goes all over the city in this one. Very good red herring characters as well. Plenty of those. Yes. I think as the plot goes, it's probably, I don't know, is it the most complex to date? I think it's probably the most, like you say, Baroque or Labyrinthine. Absolutely, yeah. Labyrinthine, um, yeah. It's not just sort of plodding through the procedure and at the end you you have a solution to the crime. It's, it's, uh, yeah, a lot more involved than than we've come to expect so far. So, uh, yeah. Although, yeah, and like you say, it's not necessarily plodding through procedure, but it is... Hard graft police work. Oh, definitely, it still gets in those those elements that that, that you want as well. But it just uh, it, it's a bit more of a circuitous route to a a solution than than we necessarily expect. Yeah, which which makes it very entertaining. So I made quite a lot of notes on this, but Steve, you made quite a lot of notes on this while well, you were on did, holiday, didn't uh, you? Well, I made a couple uh, with little tabs here, uh, which. Um, one needs to think what I um, meant by these, but perhaps you'll know the answers, because the first one, which I was intrigued by, which refers to um, Cotton Halls, and perhaps you know the answer to this, but I honestly could not remember. Uh, When he's gone out on his little trip into the next state, on his uh, fact-finding mission, uh, he comes uh, referring to the prison at Castle View, uh, and it says, um, he looked at the prison now with only passing interest. It would one day, in the not-too-distant future, become an integral part of his life. Mm. But he did not know that now, and he would n- not know it until long after Kramer case had been solved. Yeah, now, actually, that's a good point. I didn't know earth this. does that refer to? Because I can't... Because that's it's like some very... alluding to the fact he's going to... Very, very commit old. a crime himself and end up Prison in there, yeah. or which someone... is a spoiler alert doesn't happen. Yeah, mm. it's some very ominous foreshadowing of something. I can't think what it is either. I, I thought that at the I time when I was re- rereading it, but well, maybe our our journey through these books will suddenly make sense of that at some I'm point. Sure. But I don't recall off the top of my head anything. Or is it a seed of some future plot I'm, I'm line? I'm sure that, we'll have uh, a light bulb moment uh, in a few books' time. But 
or yeah. some a seed of a future plot line that McBain had, and then subsequently discarded forgot about it completely. Yeah, yeah. Mm. who knows? Well, because yeah. he was he was working at the time on the idea that Cotton Hawes was going to be the featured character in, mm. in this book and at least one more. And oh, then he right. says in his little introduction to the the 90s edition, if it doesn't work, then I can I brought him into the 87th precinct on a transfer. I can just transfer him out again, mm. um, which he doesn't do. No. So yeah, well, uh, he j- yeah, he just becomes part of the squad oh, properly. Right, okay. But yeah, it is, it's an interesting thing for someone who's churning out these books fairly quickly. I think he's, mm. he sort of takes about a month to write them at this point, and I think this is 1958, reproduces something like three in 1958. <sighs> yeah. While he's writing other stuff as well under, <laughs> under his uh, other assumed names, that you would, yeah, it would seem a bit odd to start making it feel really like, oh, I wonder what that is. I can't imagine that there was millions of people reading these going, oh, God really want to know what's going to happen in the yeah. next one and then being sort of disappointed. But Very maybe strange. maybe it's our memories, maybe we'll find out. Mm. Perhaps we will. And then the other little titbit of uh, um, intrigue is um, uh, McBain uh, describing um, a flat. Now, who is this really? I think it's when he's quizzing the um, people on the hunting party. And he's going about Shawcross Hills. Uh, it was like calling a grimy, soot-covered tenement in the 87th Precinct Ash Grey Towers. Of such t- titles are million-dollar movies made. Now, knowing <laughs> McBain, he must have been referring to some Ooh, yeah. actual well, movie which he's possibly involved with. I don't think he would write something like that, just yeah, as it, a way of describing it but I just wondered well, whether that, anybody perhaps knew instantly what he was on about there I don't there. necessarily know the answer to that one and I think perhaps some research might throw something up there mm. looking at his credits and things but that triggers my thought about McBain's little nods in this book of which there are several Ash Greer Towers and mm. I will I will oh. locate my ones now particularly so prepared. <laughs> I'm always prepared um <laughs> That's why I say er so much. <laughs> Chapter two, where after we've seen uh, Steve Carella and his stool pigeon, pigeon stool, Danny <laughs> Gimp meet up. That's an interesting thing about their relationship, but that's not what I want to talk about now. Mm-hmm. He does have a point where someone's phone number is Hunter 13800. Ah, so yeah. he's put his own actual name in there, mm-hmm. which is a little personal nod. And then much more interesting, I, I think, later on is... In chapter 7, Cotton Hawes has to go and he's trying to find out who might have had these photographs that are being used to blackmail someone. We haven't really talked about the order of the plot much, so people who have <laughs> not read this book won't have a clue. But he, he's, he goes to a magazine editor, and this magazine editor in chapter 7 is a great character because Hawes is trying to get an answer out of him, and he just likes quoting the first lines of books. And the best bit of that is he starts. Uh, yes, yeah, no. He starts yeah. quoting something, and it's a bit like um, some something that if you were doing it on TV, you'd have a sudden cutaway or something like that. He's, so he starts quoting. He goes, "The building presented a not unpleasant architectural scheme. The banks of wide windows reflecting golden sunlight. The brown weathered brick <laughs> facade. The ivy clinging to the brick and framing the windows." Mister Kramer, that's from the black. <laughs> Oh. Backboard jungle. Indeed. So he's becoming very self-referential. So in the in the universe of the eighty seventh precinct, the Blackboard Jungle by Evan Hunter was a book at least. So you know he's, he's tying his his universes together. 
But I do enjoy that little thing where this, mm. the, the ticks that he gives these characters are only in for one chapter. Like this guy just obsessed with quoting the first lines <laughs> of books at people and making them guess. <laughs> and which ones does he do? He does Gone with the Wind. From Here to Eternity. Ulysses. <laughs> the Good Earth. I don't know what that mm, is. David Copperfield there as well. Yeah, David Copperfield. <laughs> yeah, so I, I like that little bit. And I just thought while we're on that subject, he basically uses it as a writer, Ed McBain, to ponder on the nature of opening lines, mm. which is why I quoted the opening line mm. earlier. See, I was f- foreshadowing this. Indeed. The opening line of this book, it really was, yeah. Um, the opening <laughs> line of this book is, it could have been 1937, which in itself isn't, it's not an absolute cracker of an opening line, but it makes, you know... It makes interesting sense. It, well, indeed, yeah. The, the, there are some other books in the series that have more dynamic openings. I think mean, yeah. certainly the one about whichever month it is that comes in like a, a terrorist with a bomb. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> and it's... Yeah, so it could have been 1937 isn't the necessarily the greatest opening line, but it's, it's very good for scene setting. Mm. And what I've got down here, the reason I've got some... On my bookshelf, I have got loads of weird paperback sci-fi... <laughs> okay, much of which I haven't read yet. So I thought we'd all we'd pick one at random each, uh, perhaps a couple, and just read the first lines. All right, yeah. So I'm going to hand you a book each. Brilliant yeah. treat. Randomly chosen. Lovely. Off the shelf. Some. The only thing being um, the ones I haven't read yet. Unpronounceable. <laughs> so galaxy. Morgan, would you like to tell the uh, listening millions the title of the book you've got and the uh, author. I, I, I'm most assured you would. <laughs> I have um, the... Celebrated masterpiece uh, Trullian Alastor 2262 by Jack Vance. By Jack Vance? See, I think I know the name Jack Vance. I, 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 I definitely know the name Jack Vance. I can't think what he's written. I mean, apart but... from the fact that I've got a book by him on my shelf. Well, yeah, but no, I feel like I, I... Sounds like it should be a westerns writer or something like that, doesn't it? Hmm. I don't know, anyway. So... Um... So, uh, well, yeah. What's the opening line well, to... Well, let's find out, shall we? To, I can't even remember the uh, title. Well, once I get past the obligatory uh, map... Oh, excellent. Uh, Sci-fi with maps. always good to have uh, a map of uh, Welgian Spit and Blackland Lord and Clinkhammer Broad and... The Fens? Yeah. It doesn't sound quite as mythical as I was hoping, but... <laughs> Futuristic. Um, anyway. So, uh, it begins... Out toward the rim of the galaxy hangs Alastor Cluster, a wall of 30,000 live stars in an irregular volume 20 to 30 light years in diameter. Ooh, that's quite intriguing. You, you're there, scene right? setting, you're, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. You're, yeah. There. You're, you're many, many light years you're distant. Oh, that's nice, quite good. I quite like that one, despite yeah, the loose title. I might actually read these books yeah. one day. Steve, would you, well, can we have the aura title and author first? Well, I'm going to do the quote first. Okay. <laughs> Just changing the rules. <laughs> Anton huddled in his sheepskin jacket and military-style leather raincoat. Ooh. Okay. That's good. That's good. As the buggy jolted him Ooh. along through the Siberian night, numbly he watched last year's grass burning off the frosted fields. Ooh. Well, there's a lot of... And that's cars. Chekhov's Journey by Ian Watson. Hmm. So Anton Chekhov? <laughs> yep. Isn't that a sci-fi book, though? I think it is. Something about an impenetrable fog. <laughs> well, there we go. That little-known period in <laughs> Chekhov's life when he was uh, dealing with impenetrable fog rather yeah. than writing books and plays. 
A method to rein- reincarnate Anton Chekhov. Amazing. Well, there we go. Soviet time ship, which is plunging down towards the Tunguska region, completely out of control. This Ooh. sounds mind-blowing. Yeah, again, <laughs> I might read that. I'm going to read you the uh, first line from Robert Sheckley's Options. It's just got an awful cover on it. I was just showing it to the <laughs> gentleman here. Oh, it's my a God. Very weirdly sort of... Sp- have a look at, have a look odd, at that. Odd, you, looks a bit like Rick Astley. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Okay. Doesn't it? It's a little well, Rick Astley dressed as Doctor Who. <laughs> now, you see, oh, you see Robert Sheckley's playing games here, because not only does he have a quote at the start, he's, uh, he's got a... The book starts with, Notice, the rules of normalcy will be temporarily suspended while new rules are being drawn. Ooh. That sounds, sounds like, like a threat, that, doesn't it? it? Well, it does the way I read it. The new rules may not be the same as the old rules. No hints can be given concerning the new rules. The best thing to do might be to avoid conflict situations, spend the rest of the day in bed, cool out, or if that sounds boring, I could take you for a ride. Gosh, that's m- quite, sounds mystical. Quite, yes, that's quite exciting. But yes, you can have a look at the cover of that. Let's see. Yeah, Rick Astley, kind of... As a Doctor Who magician. I think that's a bit unkind to Rick Astley, really. <laughs> yeah, Rick Astley mixed with... Oh, God. Um... <laughs> it does look strangely familiar. I can't quite yeah. explain why. Um, oh, I'm yeah, unsure. <laughs> anyway, there you go. That's the power of first lines. Wow. Indeed. Which just goes to show. No, I mentioned him last week, but uh, Richard Stark books are always very good for first lines. Mm. Um, yeah, that's all I'm going to say. <laughs> well, I, I agree with you wholeheartedly. I, I do like, I always like to point out these little moments where Ed McBain starts playing his little mm. sort of author jokes and starts to, you know, he's getting extremely self-referential by this <laughs> point already. But in the grander scheme of the story for this, it's it's... A blackmail story, a murder story, and it's obviously also the police tracking down story. So there's a lot packed into mm. however many pages it is. The addition you've got, Morgan, makes it look like quite one of the slightly bigger ones. I don't, does. don't think it necessarily is. No, I, I think it's just, it, it must be some kind of idiot's edition that's really widely spaced with big writing. Oh, large print. Got the large text. Uh... Yeah. I think I, it's just, just the edition that's designed to make you look like you're slightly cleverer. Um, it's like, oh, look at him! He's reading a bit, some kind of big thick that book. book. Must have at least three hundred thousand pages. Yeah. Yeah, I th- yeah, I think it's standard standard length. It definitely yeah. is. It's it's, it's your very centimeter, much... your centimeter thick. It's what you'd expect of a, a nineteen fifty eight Ed McBain, isn't it? Yeah, because really? yeah, I think does, he's, they're um, all they're all supposed to be about about one hundred and eighty pages or something mm. like that. But he does pack a lot of uh, plot into it. It does. Sure does. And another thing I like about this one, it's got loads of diagrams in it. Um, or reproduction. All the thing. suspects, pretty much, bar one, who is he a suspect? Are kind of goodies, though, aren't they? Really, it's one of the, um, you know, the the victims, the, yeah, you know, the 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 baddie, and all the suspects generally are people who've been wronged. <laughs> yeah, it's in some a, sort of it, way, which is a bit different to the others, I would say. It is. Yeah, it's it's Today. funny because the thing with this this is it opens with. Don't have any sympathy with the victim is kind of what I mean. Hmm. Yeah, I mean, he's he's a baddie, and he, but he's been killed, 
they still have to investigate it. They do. And then we have to find out about the consequences of this with the people he has been blackmailing. Some of whom, quite happily, once they find out he's dead, go, oh, yeah, he was blackmailing me. Thank goodness that's over then. Yeah. And then there's particularly the character of Lucy Menken, who is very unwilling to sort of accept the police's help. So they have to... Arthur Brown is in this book, Detective Arthur Brown, who's only been in one before, I think. And he has the <laughs> the exciting role of sitting in a in a van, listening to a tapped phone for ages and ages and ages <laughs> until whatever happens with this copycat blackmailer happens. Indeed. Poor old Arthur Brown. Didn't get to go out and do any of the exciting adventure stuff here. It's all been hogged by cotton, wasn't it? It certainly was. Pesky cotton. Cotton who can't drive to a lodge without stopping off and sleeping with a waitress. He just couldn't help himself, could he? To the point where he's like, just take the afternoon off. (laughs) She's like, yeah, go on then. (laughs) I can't. Go on. Okay. I'll go on then. And so, yeah, it doesn't, uh, it doesn't have to do much persuading. No. There's a good range. I liked the John Murphy character as well. When I reread it, I remembered him. John Murphy looked like a Bengal lancer. <laughs> oh, he's the old guy, isn't With he? With the shaky hands. Indeed, yeah. yeah. He couldn't possibly be a good shot. He's got shaky hands. Indeed. One thing that is interesting with this, it reminds me a little bit of Murder on the Orient Express. Mm. It's not the same. And if you've not read Murder on the Orient Express, well... There's no train in this. There's no train in this, sadly. The best thing about Murder on the Orient Express is that it's got a train in it. <laughs> um, snow. It's a good story, Murder on the Orient Express. But, yeah, I'm not going to put a spoiler warning in for Murder on the Orient Express. No. If you don't know what happens in that, it's not like the mouse trap and you might no. go and see it live. They all did it. <laughs> in this, it's another one where there's a sort of composite... Mm. Composite, not it's not quite the right word, but it's a group. It's a group crime. Yeah, the, the, the actual perpetrator of the crime is unsure. It could have been any other group. That kind of thing. Yeah, yeah. Which is quite interesting because just thinking about it, earlier in the book they think it's one of a group, and then it's one of another group <laughs> later yeah. in the book. Two it's groups. Two groups. Two whole groups. Well, it is, yeah, it sort of falls into two halves, doesn't it? It does, in very that much sense. so, yeah. Unlike the episode, the adaptation we just watched, mm. which uses some of the first half of it and totally changes the the perpetrator. Mm. But, as we've discussed, they were making that for TV. They weren't trying to, you know... I think that shows how much plot there is in this, because they clearly decided that they, they couldn't possibly get yeah. it all in. They really yeah. needed to simplify it, didn't they, to fit it into an episode, which I can kind of see. Mm. Yeah, I wonder whether, like the the last book, whether there's another episode of the 87th Precinct TV series spun off from the other bit of the, the book. Possibly, yeah. Um, which, because we failed to watch New Man <laughs> in the Precinct, which was the second episode based on the last book. No, you never know, yeah. But yeah, it was interesting, as we were watching that with uh, my partner Lorraine, she did say it's like it's like an Agatha Christie. Mm. You know, there's a point where they the police got all of the victim suspects together and that sort of happens in the actually in the book but uh, yeah it's got a bit of that tradition about it anyway mm. i do like the fact that they take the police out of the city mm. and this intrigues me here because i'm gonna just sit back in my chair and I look even more like tom paulin <laughs> i'll be too far away from the microphone 
we're doing the recording in a slightly different position because the table that we normally sit around is covered in a Beatles jigsaw at the moment. <laughs> because, you know, it just is. It's a sort of crazy wild thing that happens in my house. Oh, yeah. But he takes, yeah, he takes cotton whores, at least, out of the city. Mm. And he does it very well. He does it through a sort of trail of... He figures out sort of the route that the victim might have taken, the initial victim, the blackmailer, by following his receipts for petrol. Yep. Which now neither Morgan or I drive. Mm. You do, Steve-O. What do you do with your petrol receipts? Um, I'd screw them up and keep them in my car and then eventually throw them away. Yeah. Well, it's lucky you didn't do that then, is it? Otherwise, cotton hose would never have gone any further. Yeah. Unsolved um, crime. Ah, well. Yeah. Because <laughs> it's all in a bin, in a bag with a sandwich wrapper and yeah. a load of, like, Lucasade bottles from when you've stopped <laughs> off at the at the SO garage before you go on the motorway. Talking about SO garages, cool. the other day... Kookabonga Lodge, that's where he went. We'll come back to that. Oh, no. <laughs> um... You didn't drive all the way to New Zealand, although it sounds a bit like <laughs> it. it. Yeah, the other day I was in um, down at my mum's and we were driving up to Derbyshire to go to a bookshop. And as we passed a garage on the way there, but it was the garage's name was SR, E double S A R, an SR garage, which sounds like a posh person saying SO. <laughs> it's like, what, how would you come up with a name for your garage? SR. That's very strange. strange indeed, That's just yeah. like Texacar. <laughs> it's just. Sorry, anyway, that's. That baffled me, anyway. Did you stop there? No. I burnt it to the ground. Oh, God, I hope it hasn't been burnt to the ground. <laughs> it's. The pot thickens. Yeah. But, yes, he's, he's heading out into the countryside, much as I was heading out into the Derbyshire mm. countryside. What I find really interesting is, at this point, the fake geography of Isola and the unnamed city around it and the, the place it is intersects with real geography mm-hmm. yeah. very closely because basically he goes into New York State. Yeah, so he yeah. drives out of fictional world into real world. Mm. I think he mentions that at the beginning, doesn't he, in his preamble. Um, sitting in the pages of the imaginary Azar suburbs and it. Ex-herbs. The real towns mentioned do, of course, exist. Oh, yes. Which is quite confusing, because that means you... Yes, this is where he sort of starts adapting his... Um, his, his little blurb. His little dragnet blurb. Yeah. So that, yeah, the city in these pages is imaginary. The people, imaginary. the places are all fictitious. It's the first time I've seen the word ex-herbs, which he, he uses a few times. But it's good, because it means it gives him a map, and I, being the nerd I am, did look on Google Maps to see if it was a mm. true representation of that part of New York State, and it is. Excellent. So I've still quite... Quite? That's not a word. <laughs> still quite. Well, I sound like the person playing Haviland in the uh, 87th <laughs> Precinct he did these slurred words. Yeah. He gets all what he says. No, he's overdubbed quite a lot in that series. Gloversville. But yeah, so it's it takes him off into the... Now, how do you pronounce the name of these, this mountain slash game reserve? The Adirondacks? Adirondack? Adirondacks? I don't know. I, I don't know. Where, where, where? Hmm. Oh. A-D-I-R-O-N-D-A-C-K. Adirondack. Adirondack. 
Adiridondak. Adiridondak, don't you know? <laughs> it sounds Scottish. Adiridondak. If any listeners can tell us how to pronounce that, then that would be really well, tremendous. Given that the Ad- other after the United Kingdom, Ad- the second Ad- most Ad- listening Ad- place to this podcast is America, and I'm sure many of people are listening to this going, "How do they not know how to pronounce what is the matter with these Adrindax? I bet it's Probably. Adrindax. Probably Adri Adridak Adronidak. I don't know. I guess because I, I saw sort of the word "ian" in the middle, I just assumed it was Adiendax, and I've been been fine with that ever since. But now you've sowed Ad- the seed of Ad- doubt. Well, Adiendak. Yeah, that's got a good ring to it. Actually, <laughs> I'm sure it's not that. It's well, probably maybe as far from that as you could imagine. Maybe we'll get a, a visit from Mountains. Groff Conklin, the fact-checking ghost. <laughs> he might pop up to uh, to explain. It's hoping. What now? Well, not now. Oh. Well, yes, now. Now nah. that's good. <laughs> not turning up. <laughs> One other thing I want to mention is the fact that it also has a callback to the book before. It does. He needs to find out something about photographers, which he seems obsessed with at this point. Apparently, in nineteen. 19- 57, 58, New York, or its fictional equivalent, was just full of photography oh, offices. Yes. You couldn't move for them to the point where half of this, of the initial research is all about photographer or photography offices, photographs, and one of the... Which is big... a bit weird having done that in the previous book as well. Mm, yeah, but he, he calls back to the character Ted Boone from the book before, which is sort of nice, and... Uh, but if you don't know about that character, it's a bit of a weird one, really. Mm-hmm. But it just gives him an easy way to find a bit of information, or, or the police to find a bit of information. And Ted Boone, who 30 years later had his own uh, television programme in England. Boone, <laughs> as played by Michael Elphick. Yeah. I suppose if he was thinking of things that people could be blackmailed for than having some some, uh, photographs that you'd rather people didn't see was a a good, obvious reason for someone to be blackmailed. So having established a photographer character recently, it was useful to just bring him back to use that as a way to get around. Yeah, I think because otherwise you'd have had to have a a chapter after chapter of him trying to find find this, you know, anything to do with the connection. He just uses him like Google. (laughs) He does. Ted Boone. Google here. Like Ask Jeeves. <laughs> Ask Jeeves. The original Ask Jeeves. Is this the first appearance of Bob O'Brien in this ah, as well? Bob O'Brien. Tell us about Bob O'Brien. Well, he's he's pretty much never present, isn't he? And yet there'll be not a single story that he's the principal character mm. in. But yeah. crops up quite a lot. Always getting shot. Oh, uh, yeah. Very accident-prone. or Well, not accident-prone, but... Um, Kind of crazy things happen to him, and yeah. therefore the other the other um, cops don't like to partner him because yeah, um, he's, he's, so he's a bit of a lone wolf. Does his own little uh, stake out uh, through through no fault of his own. He's been yeah. required to use his service revolver a lot more often than most other people have. So that's pretty much when... the only thing you ever learn about <laughs> him in the entire series from. Like, now, nineteen fifty eight until yeah. the noughties. So if, if there was zero. Pro- character development whatsoever. If he crops up, you know it's likely something's going to go wrong fairly soon. Yeah, it's I find it, it's I find it quite sad. Mm. It's it's sort of a bit of a tragic tale really. 
Because he's, you know, Detective Second Grade Bob O'Brien, he was Irish, clear down to his belly button, which I presume was in the shape of a shamrock. <laughs> <laughs> and he became a cop sort of by accident, because he applied to three different jobs and the police got back to him first. He became a cop by accident, and he he shot someone... He just has to keep shooting people to save his own life. People keep coming. It's like he shot someone he knew. It's a really tragic figure. It, yeah, it's it's horrid, really. And uh, who better think the squad to send to catch a, a copycat blackmailer in a what turns out to be a gay bar than uh, Bob O'Brien? So they send him off to do all <laughs> to do the dirty Naturally. work. Of, uh, Why wouldn't you? So this this is yeah. Let's get on a bit of social history there because you noticed this when they have to arrange a meet to try and catch the person who's taken over the blackmailing. They choose a bar, and the bar's called Gumpy's, which is <laughs> I, don't, I think if you saw that name, no matter which section of society you're in, mm. you'd probably go Gumpy's. It's a, it's a name that's almost designed to discourage anyone from going there. But yeah. <laughs> you you sort of I I don't know whether it's just that I. Skipped over it in, yeah, I must admit in my that mind. Me by, but I hadn't really thought so. about it. I guess there weren't at the time uh, bars that were officially gay bars, but um, it, it seems like this is a place where um, certainly law enforcement would turn a blind eye to assorted activities, including um, yeah, well, uh, including the terrifying scenes of. Two men dancing together. Well, it is te- terrifying, obviously, yeah. Or um, a lady dressed in a suit. Yeah, well, mind-blowing. Yeah, well, it's, a, it's an interesting thing, I think, in terms of the social history, because you don't get much about homosexuality, particularly. It's certainly not in these these early ones, except as the occasional, are you a fag type mm. jibe. In fact, Corella says it in one, and it seems really it, weird coming out of his yeah, out of his mouth. You, you know, in none of in like the later books, there's no way he would have said that. But it, it's just the, the the changing times over which these books were written. But yeah. Um, but yeah, it's sort of. So Gumpy's is portrayed as a place where the police clearly know that the uh, that these presumably I obviously don't know the American law that the I think we've talked about this before, and perhaps I said I was going to try and find out mm. when uh, homosexuality was decriminalised. And I know statewide it changes; it's different mm. different rules. But it's a place not not only do pe- the police sort of leave leave them alone to go there, mm. you know, gay men and women, but also people get a watch. It's a weird uh, I, sort of like yeah, I mean, like must, gay zoo. Presumably, for some people, must have just seemed like some. Hilarious novelty from from the way it's it's written there. I don't know. It's it's like it, it's unimaginable, really. But um... yeah, but that when you were, when you pointed that out, it uh, triggered my other note thing that I noticed in here, which was they're talking about magazine titles, and he's sort of talking about gay magazine titles about hmm. some magazines who have titles like um, he he. As in he, he, and things like that. I can't find the point in the book now where those magazine titles are. It's, it's one of the... When he goes to visit one of the of publishers... it would be, yeah. Oh, yeah. The magazine had a very virile name. And Cotton Hall starts daydreaming about names for magazines such as Coward, the magazine for you and me. Slob, for men who don't care. He, he, the magazine of togetherness. <laughs> so I, don't, I wonder if... Uh, 
seem to have been on McBain's mind. Well, presumably, yeah. Uh, that, personally, I'd, I'd like to take out a subscription to Slob. Um, <laughs> it sounds like just, just my kind yeah, of co- publication. Con- yeah, yeah, it could be a contributor. <laughs> Any other points, gentlemen, that stand out? No, I don't, I don't think so. I think we've covered most there. Yeah, well, a, yeah. a cracking got, read, I would it say. It definitely is a cracking read. I've got it one is. or two little tiny sort of additional thoughts. Mm-hmm. It's it's really hard to actually talk about this in a linear way because it is a it's a quite a, a complicated book and we're not trying to avoid spoilers necessarily but it is worth the journey because it, it, yeah. it takes you down one road it you know it almost literally is taking you down a much longer and more distant road in terms of the characters and what lengths they'll go to to solve a crime and there's some really good tension moments in it particularly when he's up investigating in the sort of Adirondacks, Adirondacks. <laughs> Who knows? He goes swimming, doesn't he? He does yeah. scuba diving. The, well, that's the, that's the oh, that's the moment that's, that's a bit like, oh, this feels like yeah, cliffhanger. Because the guy he's with, you kind of like, Ooh. oh my god. Yeah, because and then well, the end we'll of it. say what's going to happen. Yeah, but, uh, yeah. It, it kind of realizing some Shit. possibilities yeah. about the the yeah. Oh. Because he when he's when he's actually he's like he suddenly dawns on him is is this actually a terrible idea? Yeah. Well, he does it. He does it twice in the book, doesn't he? Basically, the Denouement is is Cotton Hawes going, not telling anyone what he's doing, leaving a <laughs> message for for Corella who's not there, so doesn't understand a thing that's going on. And he's and this scene earlier where he's like puts himself in the most risky position <laughs> possible. But that's cotton horse for you. Yeah, he's not sleeping with you. He's uh, <laughs> he's getting involved in a risky scenario with you. Indeed, he is. Yeah, there's a little bit of uh, of a couple of moments of like, oh, that's a lucky coincidence. Like finding the the uh, blackmail items through a key that's in a magnetic box that's inside a a Chevy it's in the car. Yeah, mm. I think it's a Chevy, isn't it? Um, well, it's a, an American car. Of some sort. Yes. But I don't think it really hurts it that much. No, indeed. So, so I've mentioned Murder on the... Oh, that's the other thing. You know, there's a new film of Murder on the Orient Express coming out. I, I didn't. Directed by Ken Branagh. Hmm. Guess who's playing Pyro? Uh, Ken Branagh. Ken Branagh. <laughs> the trailer, the first trailer's come out today. I mean, it is, like most of these film adaptations of it, it's a star-studded cast. Hmm. Is he going to go up? Like Albert Finney used to do. I yes. <laughs> well, the the voiceover comes on on this trailer, and you and I was like, oh, it's someone doing an impression of Poirot. <laughs> <laughs> so it doesn't even make any sense. It's, it sounded like someone doing an impression of of uh, Suchet. Why do you need to redo that? Because the, the the film's brilliant. Well, there's several, isn't there? Did did what with like well, Ustinov the one with Albert do Finney one. and uh, or is it Ustinov? No, it's Albert Finney and yeah. Sean Connery and. Angela Lansbury. No, 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 not Angela Lansbury. Who else is in that? One with Sean Connery and um, Richard Widmark. I think there is a Peter um, Ustinov one as well. Uh, I'd have to check, but I seem to remember Ustinov and Niven, or is that in? Is that a different one? Or is that not mm, Triangle at Rhodes? Uh, I'm thinking... Uh, yeah, the one I'm thinking of has got... Uh, uh, Michael Yorkin and uh, Sean Connery and I think yeah, Albert well, Finney. Definitely star-studded. And this one, 
this one definitely is as well. But you need to have a look at the uh, the way that Branner has designed himself as Poirot. Mm. It's the most ridiculous moustache you'll ever <laughs> see in your life. Yeah. I'll look forward to seeing that, but mainly because it's got a train in it. <laughs> <laughs> can you buy an Orient Express engine, Morgan? Uh, you, you can buy many different Orient Express um, engines and, and indeed... Uh, carriage sets depending on exactly what you want to do i mean i i, I should know more about the actual orient express than i than i do but you certainly hornby have made a number of different orient express packs okay also um get into some specialist knowledge here. yeah uh, uh, companies like lilliput have done some some great sets of uh orient express um ciwl uh, coaches oh very nice oh there we go <laughs> See, there's a so level of detail. Oh. So I'd like to say to our, our listeners in um, the United Kingdom, the United States, Ireland, Canada, Australia, Barbados, Sweden, Argentina, the Republic of Korea, Poland, Switzerland, Italy, and other countries, two listens, um, that's, you know, that's the information you need if you want to buy an Orient Express, uh, what I called earlier, a mobile train, <laughs> when I meant train. model train. Well, it is mobile, it's also a train, you weren't wrong. No, it's, yeah. <laughs> Good. How many McBains you built to read um, during a, an entire journey on the Orient Express? Well, the, oh. the full-length journey. Yeah. Well, I suppose it depends whether you get murdered or not, <laughs> or whether you have to investigate a murder, or if you difference. are doing the murdering, that probably yeah, takes you a bit of your time. Yeah. And you, yeah, probably quite a lot of uh, preparation, concent- execution, concentrating, and trying not to give out, give yourself away. It also depends which era of McBain you read into. Those, yeah. yeah. There's no way to. That's funny that they've never thought to measure train journeys in in terms of how many McBains you can yeah. read on them. It'd be like yeah, the one the train from Liverpool to Crewe you can read three chapters of point, of till point death. two of a McBain. <laughs> it's okay, darling. We're still two point five McBains away from Paris. <laughs> We're trapped in the snow. We haven't got enough <laughs> McBains. <laughs> Yeah, other things I've noticed as well. Um, things Paul has noticed this week. I put Star Trek on the original series when I sat down to my tea mm-hmm. yesterday. And it was the final episode of series two, which I think is 1968. This isn't a Star Trek podcast. I don't need the details. <laughs> but it was called Assignment Earth. And Robert Lansing, who plays Steve Carella... Plays is, an alien. Well, he, he plays a human time travel possibly alien... Who has a cat that is actually a sexy lady, but is a cat. And his character's called Gary Seven. Wow. <laughs> and it sounds very confusing. Well, he's called Gary Seven, and it's a time travel episode. Well, so Gary 87. That'd be amazing, yeah, wouldn't it? They should have done that, really. <laughs> but it's a, I switched it on, and, and in colour, Robert Lansing's handsome face popped up on the screen. It's like, oh, well, I'll watch the rest of this episode. And it's an episode where... I think, apropos of just day-to-day routine, someone says to the Enterprise, you need to go back to 1968 to make sure this nuclear missile doesn't get tampered with. And they just sort of go, oh, yeah, we can time travel now. Oh, handy. Um, And when they get there, Robert Lansing's character as Gary Seven is sort of interfering with Earth affairs. But his intentions and motives are, I think, technically good. And he's been sent by some other people to do this stuff. 
And he's great. It's because mm. Robert Lansing's great, and he, you oh, know, yeah. he looks fantastic on screen. And he has a sort of amusing partnership with this this girl. And it was intended as a spin-off series from Star Trek that never got oh. made. Oh. So mm. there was supposed to be this thing. I presume it was going to be called Assignment Earth. And the episode ends with with Kirk and Spock going, "We've had a look in the future. It seems that you and Miss whatever her name is are going to have some very interesting adventures." Oh, that would have been brilliant having a, a spin-off about a well, mad... Gary Lansing is... Gap, no, no, what's Robert he? Lansing. Robert Lansing is Gary Seven. Well, yeah. I guess in... we probably probably need to start some kind of Kickstarter for that now yeah. to get that made. Who, who's the current equivalent of Robert Lansing? In what, in terms of that type of actor? Yeah. Uh, well, we never, we haven't... Oh, come on, we still haven't cast our... We're not very good at this, are we? We're not, not great at this, now. I don't know who you'd get in... It's it probably end up being a comic turn now, whereas Robert Lansing uh, plays yeah. it quite quite straight, but that gives yeah. it a charm because he's got that little sort of twinkle in that, his eye. That's it. It needs that, not like too overtly comic. I think. Yeah. yeah. But as long as there's a cat that turns into a sexy lady. Well, absolutely. Yeah, that, that's that's the, the crux that's, of the. Yeah, that's uh, your the selling matter, point. Really. That's your elevator pitch. <laughs> <laughs> but so, Gary Seven reminded me of the phrase Adam Twelve. Oh, yeah. Which was a spin-off from Dragnet. <laughs> My God, when Dragnet where's your came... brain going? <laughs> when Dragnet was rebooted, not rebooted, sort of made again in the 60s, they had a spin-off series called Adam 12, Indeed. which was about the motor vehicle section of the police, which then made me think of your band, Morgan, oh, yeah. and your song, Goodnight Adam 12. <laughs> What's that about? Um, that, that, that's actually not a reference to the... The show Adam Twelve at all. It's a reference to the movie Josie and the Pussycats. Okay, um, but is, <laughs> is well, how does the Adam Twelve Robert Lantner? <laughs> it's, Robert Lantner. It's Josie. A, 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 a line uh, <laughs> said by Alan Cummings' character um, when he's trying to get rid of Alan M. Actually, who's uh, Josie's uh, hapless uh, would-be suitor, oh. and um, he's been trained to, angling for a date with Josie as she's become a, a, a pop star, mm-hmm. and he's trying to find like a time in her busy schedule. Uh, they eventually manage to find a, a little time where they can meet up, and uh, Alan Cumming, as Josie's manager, says, "Sold to the young man with no future." And then shoves him out of the hotel room door. And, Good night, Adam Twelve. And he's just trying to protest that he's called Alan M as the door slams in his face. I wonder face. if that's a reference to the program Adam Twelve, and maybe I'm sure Good night, Adam Twelve is the like the sign off. Possibly, thing, yeah, or something like that. It, it all ties in, you see. Do, everything out, ties they? in. This, you know, this is, I haven't even found a Columbo connection this week. <laughs> ah. Not that I've written down. I have some <laughs> other ones elsewhere. <laughs> Uh, <laughs> and we were talking about a Columbo connection we were, earlier. We, were. we do need to save that uh, for another. Yeah, we need yeah a special <laughs> edition. Yeah, but for now, in terms of killers' payoff, we will say goodbye. And we need to score. You forget oh, to what am I doing? Oh. This is yes. I'm getting sort of tied up into the sequence there and missing out much of the sequence. I know the uh, <laughs> the shield, the awarding of the, the shields. shields. Oh. Yeah, well, we need to use Kenneth while we still can before he's repurposed back to the yeah, Great but... North beer run calculations. Ah, well, there we go. Um, so we yeah we need as always a little bit of a recap on. Yeah. Okay. Well, I've got me. I've got me previous. Yeah. Just to to uh, sort of calibration. Yeah, calibration. We need to punch these numbers into the uh, colourful buttons. Cop hater got eighty six. The mugger got seventy six. The pusher seventy five. The con man eighty three and. Killer's Choice 
Got 71. That was our low point so far. Let's have a little think now. Mm. And I'm going to go first, and I am going to award it. Oh, I'm going to... <laughs> it's like if we get it wrong. <laughs> I know, like someone's going to tell yeah. us off. I'm going to award Killer's Payoff 82 police shields. 82 police shields. Morgan Brown. Um, I, I'm not going to differ too much from you. I have a thing. It's a, it's a, a cracking read. Really nicely plotted. A lot of interest. Some good characterization. I, I'm going to give it a solid eighty. Stephen Royston. Um, yeah, I'll go eighty as well. I think it's uh, a definite eight out of ten. Yeah, strong eight out of ten. I think. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Well, you know my system of being against conventional maths and rounding down. (laughs) (laughs) And it rounds down to 80. Because the the reason I made that stupid noise before was because I was like, is it 80? Is it 82? And I went a little higher. But it rounds down to 80. And I think that's a very solid, respectable score for a very solid, respectable book. Yeah, it's it's, it's a good one. It is. And Cotton Hawes, despite his dirty, dirty (laughs) behaviour, and goodness only knows what... Does he take protection with him? I don't understand. It's just <laughs> you couldn't write about a character like that now in a modern setting. Not because so much now. Just you know, common sense and awareness. Mm. Really, despite him, he's he's becoming a more interesting character. He's not the he's he's, he's a lot more engaging as well, isn't he? You, you have a bit more sympathy for him, and yeah, yeah, definitely. I definitely agree with that. So. That's Killer's Payoff for now, and the next book is another Killer's dot 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 story, and that is Killer's Wedge, and we will do that one next. So I'm going to say goodbye, goodbye, as is Mr. Brown. Uh, Goodbye. Mr. Royston. Goodbye. See ya. Goodbye.